listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers from faith leaders to academics to artists to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome back to our show the Most Reverend John Wester, Archbishop of Santa Fe. Archbishop, it's lovely to have you here again. Well, thank you, Rabbi Neil. It's an honour to be with you again, I must say. Thank you. Look, a huge transformation in healthcare accessibility has happened since we last met and since you were last on the show. And, in, and that change is that abortion is now illegal in many states in this country. So I really appreciate you coming on our show to share your perspective on that ruling. So let's start with the Vatican's response to the Supreme Court ruling that came out the following day that said that the court's ruling, and I quote, could provide an opportunity to reflect on life, the protection of the defenseless and the discarded, women's rights and the protection of motherhood. So my question for you, my first question is, isn't it a bit late for that reflection? Well, um, I think that certainly, you know, that's a very important reflection to have always uh, to look at uh, from our perspective, the Catholic Church's perspective on on the protection of the life within the womb, the protection of women in general, the protection of motherhood, etc., and all of all of living creatures, all human beings. And so, I think the Vatican is trying to say that this is a moment. This is a very significant moment in our history as a country. This Dobbs versus Jackson decision. And so, I think the Vatican is simply saying this is good for us to once again reflect on this important issue. And of course. I could also say, in a way, it's 40 years too late uh, to have that reflection, because the reflection from our perspective was short-circuited by a judgment of the Supreme Court 40 years ago that, for all practical purposes, denied the human dignity of the unborn at, at every stage of development up to birth. And so I think that, you know, that's... But my main point is I think that's a reflection that we always need to have and should not be short-circuited. And... Uh, but I think key in that is to reflect not only on the life in the womb, but the life of the mother. And in my own statement here in New Mexico, I made that very clear that, you know, I, I know some people I hear saying, well, we rejoice and we're just ecstatic about this decision. But that didn't seem uh, to fit the mood and the, and the reality that we're dealing with, that we were grateful from our perspective that the law is, is now uh, more in keeping with our, our, more, our own moral teaching but at the same time, we're very cognizant of the need for having more benefits for pregnant women, SNAP benefits, uh, prenatal and postnatal care, uh, uh, help with employment, housing. Uh, we have to support women in, in so many ways, especially those who find themselves in a difficult pregnancy. I, I think what's behind – I really appreciate your answer on this. What's behind my question is once this – once the law changed – there are immediately, you know, enormous number of women who are left without, without these things that you're talking about, that, that we need to have these benefits, we need to have these supportive services. And it seems that there's been a change in law before all these services are, are 
around. And so what that does is does, that leaves women, some women who are giving birth, it leaves them in a very different, a difficult position. Or, or women who are pregnant, it leaves them in a very difficult position. So that's, I guess, why I'm asking about, isn't it too late? Because shouldn't we have worked out a way to have this reflection and conversation in a meaningful way 10 years before the law changed? It doesn't seem to have happened until the law changes. And then the church, the Catholic Church says, now is a time for us to discuss. I feel like as a result of that delay, a lot of women, a lot of people who are giving birth or people who are pregnant and struggling are, are left in a limbo situation. Well, from our perspective, of course, this is such a huge issue, as you say so rightly. Um, there's so many people involved, but from our perspective, we have been doing that. The Catholic Church has been. We have been accompanying women. We have been supporting them and helping them in their pregnancies and helping them with uh, all kinds through our Catholic charities and Catholic relief services throughout the world. And we've been doing everything we can to support them, to protect life and to support women who are pregnant. So through our Catholic hospitals and Catholic health care, we, we're uh, giving all kinds of services, often for free, to especially in poor communities. So we really are doing that already, but you bring up a good point. It's got to be more than just our church or more than other churches or whatever other pro-life groups. It's got to be something that the government helps out in. That's why we've worked so hard for that uh, for the constitutional amendment to be able to get that extra money from our state savings for prenatal and postnatal care for children or, you know, keep people uh, helping them from the beginning of life instead of what was the, we use, you know, it's better to put money into the playpen than the state pen. So I think that, you know, the church has been advocating for that, but unfortunately that's something in our society that we, we still have a long way to go. You mentioned the phrase pro-life, and I guess that leads me on to another question. As a result of this Supreme Court ruling, there's no question that maternal mortality will increase in this country. So real people who have already been born will die in greater numbers. Most of those are people living in poverty, particularly people of color. Added to that, medications that many people in this country take for varying medical conditions are now being restricted because they could conceivably be taken in larger quantities to cause an abortion at home. So people who are not even considering an abortion are now getting sick because their medication is being taken away just in case because of this ruling. And added to that, women have already gone to jail in some states for having miscarriages. So here's my pro-life question. How can any clergy member say that this ruling is a good thing with all of those things that have happened, as many Catholic clergy have included locally, or, or to put it another way in those specific terms, how can any clergy member call themselves pro-life and support a change in law that is literally killing people? Right. I think that's a very important point that you raise, and that and the church, our church very much cares for the life of women, pregnant women, and and uh, we need to do everything that we can uh, to minimize or eliminate completely anyone who's going to die because of a botched abortion or because it was hard to get an abortion. And, uh, you know, the, the, what we saw before uh, in our country, this is, you know, is not a good thing at all. So we definitely do not see that as a good thing. But you, again, and we'll probably get into this later on in the show, but... Um, from our perspective, we're dealing with human life in the womb and, of course, the mother's human life. 
So from that point of view, you could say that there'll be an increase of maternal mortality because of the decision. But from our point of view, we say, yes, but since abortion has been legal, there's been a 100% mortality rate for the babies that have been aborted. So again, it's a complicated question to be sure. But again, if we're dealing with human life in all these stages, the mothers and the baby in the womb, then we can see, uh, you know, we do everything we can to uh, to minimize abortion or eliminate it, to minimize botched abortions, to minimize any woman, especially women of color, women who are poor, uh, from getting, you know, uh, from dying from an abortion or getting, or getting sick or being impaired because of that. So we, we do care about that very much, and we want to make sure that we do all we can. But at the same time, we, from our perspective, cannot ignore that this is a human life that we're speaking about that is that is 100% taken uh, in an abortion. So I, I guess this comes down, as often in this debate, to when does human life begin? And and I yes. do I do hear what you're saying is, is from your perspective, there was a 100% mortality rate beforehand. I hear that. I think that leads me to, you know, Pope Francis said the that the defense of an unborn life is closely linked to the defense of each and every other human right. And he said that it involves the conviction that a human being is always sacred and inviolable, inviolable in any situation and at every stage of development. And, and you mentioned about the human dignity of the unborn. So the philosophical perspective of the church, the Catholic church, seems clear in theory that you're saying this is a human from the point of conception and it, but but my i guess my guess my question is philosophy and theology is all well and good until it meets the real world what happens in the all too tragic situation where a doctor has to make a difficult choice either to save the life of a mother or save the life of a fetus in such a tragic situation which obviously happens a lot what does a church believe the doctors should do if they cannot save both lives if you believe that they are both human lives the fetus mm -hmm. and the mother so what what does the catholic church say doctors should be doing at that point right well I, I, and this is of course i remember as a child seeing a movie about this. i think it was called the cardinal i'm not sure now to be honest it's like 50 years ago or something but uh, I think that was exactly the moral dilemma that this uh, clergyman uh, had to uh, make, this decision. I think it was his sister. Fortunately, from what I've been told by doctors and over the years, is that um, uh, you know, uh, you'd have to take a look at the reality that that's a very uncommon reality, that this does not, and thanks be to goodness, it does not happen a lot in our country, especially that there has to be this choice between the mother or the baby. Uh, certainly of the 60 million plus abortions performed in our country since Roe v. Wade, uh, I, would, I would wonder how many actually were done to save the physical life of the mother. Uh, I think it's quite few. But again, uh, our own moral theology and that of so many other religions is very nuanced in this and has a very, I think, important way of looking at such a situation that has to be looked at in, in a case-by-case -case basis. And basically, to put it in a nutshell, in the little limited time we have, you know, the moral uh, decision maker, the mother, the father, the family, the, the doctors, the moral the ethicists, they have to look at God, they have to look at our moral principles, they have to look at the context, and they have to look at the human beings involved, those four entities, and, and coming up with a decision. And so 
those cases, thank goodness, are rare, but uh, we do have a moral theology that allows us to, to make those decisions, much like when the time comes to remove hydration and nutrition than someone who has uh, been languishing on, uh, on uh, medical machines for many months or even years. Uh, we do have a moral uh, apparatus to make those decisions. They're always difficult decisions, of course, but we do have a, a way of making them. But as I say, I think it's it's very rare, thank goodness, that we have to make such a decision. But I, I think even though it, it's rare, it still highlights the difference between essentially theology and practice almost. I think what's what's fascinating for me is when you said we have to, you know, ask of God, and, and we do need to take a break, but obviously you and I come from differing theological perspectives. Perhaps after the break, we can look at at least one biblical text, and I'm sure you'll have many others, that... that demonstrates our differing perspective on human life and when it begins and what it means to consult with God. Um, so we're going to take a break. Um, my, You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. My guest this evening, the Most Reverend John Wester, Archbishop of Santa Fe. We're discussing reproductive rights and abortion, and we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. My guest this evening, the Most Reverend John Wester, the Archbishop of Santa Fe. And before the break, we started to talk about when does human life begin? And you mentioned consulting with God. That leads me to Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 23, which says that if a man causes injury to a pregnant woman and she miscarries, then the man pays a fine. And earlier in the same chapter, in verse 12, it says that anyone who strikes a person and kills them must be put to death. So if, filling, if, if killing a fetus doesn't result in being put to death in the Bible, then to me, having an abortion cannot be the same as killing a person from a biblical perspective. So to me, as a rabbi, this chapter clearly demonstrates from a biblical perspective that a fetus does not have the same status as a person who has been born. So... My question to you is, as a Catholic who reads that passage, how do you read that? Do you read that differently? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's an interesting passage you cite here. And I think that um, certainly um, it seems to me in a way it's kind of pointing out the difference between manslaughter and murder, you know, from our current legal, civil legal system. But I think, to be honest, I know this sounds weird or different uh, for two religious leaders, uh, to be speaking and for me to say this, but I think we have to really prescind from looking at it from a religious point of view or a philosophical point of view. I think what we have to do is, um, in a certain say, 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 I don't want to talk about religion right now, yours or mine, but we should say that, true, our religious beliefs certainly undergird our moral actions. But I think one of the criticisms, and I think you mentioned earlier, Rabbi, is that uh, a lot of times pro-life religious leaders are accused of imposing their religious beliefs on others. And I think it's important to say that from, for, us, for us, yes, we do have those religious beliefs, but even, even more fundamental really is, is that we can find common ground, I believe, in our country when we discuss this issue, not from a philosophical or theological point of view, but rather just from a basic scientific point of view. 
So what I mean by that is, and I've heard this, and I just can't think of their names, but Dr. Hurl, but it was one of the doctors in California many years ago, gave us a talk on this. And uh, um, he was at Stanford at the time. But he was saying how, and others have said, how scientifically, biologically teaches that the fetus is a living, developing human organism. It's a human being. It's, it's not a giraffe. It's not a hippopotamus. It's, a, it's alive. And it's clearly, you know, scientifically with the DNA and everything, it's a human being. It's something that um, uh, is, is that's, that's a fact that we, can, that we can look to. And secondly, uh, and this is a common principle that, that human dignity, therefore, is innate. It's not something that's given or bestowed by anyone, including the church or any court or any elected official or any individual. Uh, but it's something that's inherent. And so I think that it's really, that's really undergirds our saying that this is a human being in the womb of a mother. It's not her liver. It's not her kneecap. It's not her kidney. It's not a part of her body. It's a separate, uh, independent, unrepeatable life. Um, so, so we take the view, therefore, that, that this is really not even imposing a philosophical or theological or uh, uh, you know, way of living on, on on a society, and I think too, we it would be. I would love to discuss this even more with you because there, we could go to the to the scripture and and as I say, I think for me the Exodus quote, the pericope you quote there would be again showing the difference between manslaughter and murder. That you know the intention uh, it was not to kill the, the 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 life in the womb, but it was injuring the woman, which caused in you know that that death, and that would be manslaughter versus a direct intention to murder. But even there, I think we could say that, um, you know, I would point out Psalm 139, you know, uh, when I was being fashioned in the depths of the earth, in other words, the womb, you knew me, you fashioned me from the beginning of my very existence, you knew me. So there's a, there's that sense that scripture tells us of God's care for us from the very beginning of our lives, our conceptions until natural death. So we would uh, take that interpretation and and, uh, and I suppose we could go back and forth, and it does have a lot of judgment calls, but that's how we would perceive it. Well, I mean, I, I, as I expected, I do, I do profoundly disagree with you. Um, I, I think, firstly, for me, and again, this is the, the nature of our conversation and, and why I so appreciate you being here. The, the Torah does cover cases of manslaughter very clearly, and they, it talks about the cities of refuge. So for me to have this be a, a, a text about manslaughter doesn't seem to make sense to me, um, especially because we have this idea of in the same chapter of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you know, the, this idea of uh, appropriate punishment for, a, um, for the loss of a life. Right. Um, and if this were manslaughter, then this person would need to go to a city of refuge, I think. I, I think the other thing that I, I disagree profoundly with you, and I remember when we had uh, Deacon Andy on the show as well, he said a very similar thing about this is what science says. And coming from a scientific perspective, uh, you know, admittedly bi not biology, but astrophysics, um, science doesn't speak on this. This is a theolog theological perspective. This is philosophy. Science can say that the fetus is alive, although there are questions of what it means to be alive. Um, you know, science doesn't say the fetus is a living, developing human being. I, I would profoundly disagree with your statement on that because mm -hmm. science, for one thing, science doesn't speak in a monolithic voice. 
But I think more than that, the question almost is not whether or not it's alive, but whether or not it's a person and whether or not it has personhood. And I think this text from Exodus is very strongly pointing about the difference between a person and not yet a person. So I, 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 I'm struggling a little um, between, you know, the rabbi and the archbishop when the archbishop says, let's put the religious, we can't look at it from a religious point of view. But I think what's happening is that the religious point of view is being imposed on science and saying science speaks in a voice which is essentially religious because science can't say this is a human being um, because that's philosophy, that's theology. Where where does human where does humanity start? And I, I interestingly, I, I wondered, you know, will will Archbishop John Wester quote Psalm one hundred thirty nine? I actually thought that before the before we spoke because yes, it says you knew me. But that doesn't mean me is the same me that it was later. It doesn't mean necessarily that a you knew me as a fetus, but now you know me as a person. It could easily be interpreted as. So that's my I think that's my challenge hearing what you're saying. You know, mm-hmm. for me, this Exodus text it really clearly differentiates. If you kill a fetus, you pay a fine towards the husband, not towards her, because unfortunately she is considered to be property, because her his property has been damaged. Whereas if you kill a living person who has come out of the womb and is alive, then you are put to death. For me, I'm not hearing anything that's that's speaking against that. Right. Well, I guess we do disagree on that because I do see it as uh, the intentionality there was not to kill the uh, the baby in the womb. It was to harm the woman. And as a, as a consequence of that, she did miscarry. So that, to me, does uh, define manslaughter. And the other was an intention to kill, and that would be murder. So I do see it differently than you do. But furthermore, I think, though, the, the second point you made, um, you know, that's a very good point I think you bring up, Rabbi, and that is you know, what constitutes the human person and a human being. And I think what science can tell us is that we do have an independent organism. We do have an independent life. We know it's not dead. It's not a rock. You know, it's it's just alive. It's growing. The cells are multiplying. So we have a life. And we know it's not a giraffe or hippopotamus. We know it's a it's a it's a it's a Homo sapiens life. If we use a, I'm trying a more neutral word, if you will. So we have. To, so I've I've struggled with this as well. And. Um, and so I certainly welcome your, your disagreement because it's something that I've really struggled with. And I think that for me, you have to give, in moral theology, you have to give the vulnerable party the benefit of the doubt. The reality remains that no one can conclusively prove that it's at this day, this point, that this fetus is, can be considered a human being. And so, you know, for example, here in New Mexico, we have a late-term abortion. You can abort right up to birth. So um, I, I, I find, okay, well, to me, you know, uh, we know we have pregnancies where women uh, deliver uh, prematurely. And we know that clearly, you know, that, that to me, that's a human being. It looks like a human being. It acts like a human being. And if you go just with personhood, do you go with consciousness, free, free will, then maybe the age of seven, when a person has free will, <laughs> Then they right. So, I mean, you get what point do you decide that's a person or not? So well, arbitrarily, some have said, well, it's at birth. But I would say, well, I would take it if you give the vulnerable party the benefit of the doubt, we have to go back to conception. That's when we really have the beginning of this 
living organism within the mother. I appreciate we only have a few minutes left, but again, uh, I, I disagree. Firstly, in terms of late-term abortion, of course, no woman, no nobody who is pregnant, nobody who is pregnant carries a child and then at the end of that pregnancy decides, oh, I don't want this anymore. So late-term abortions, which are extremely rare, are always because of really serious medical complications that threaten either the life of the fetus or the life of the mother. So I think it's important to take, for me, to take late-term abortions out of the discussion because it's, it, it's so rare and always because of medical necessity. But you said something was fascinating to me, apart from the independent thing. You said that we arbitrarily decide at birth, but that's why we have birthdays. Um, That's when a person becomes a person when they are not in relationship, immediate physical relationship with another with with another being. And and you spoke about, you know, you said science says they're an independent um, uh, being, but it doesn't. Again, I'm going to disagree with you. I think science says it's alive, but at no point says it's independent. And I think my perspective comes from an extremely good book called Ecofeminism, in, uh, in which Maria Mice talks about when people, progressives and conservatives, separate the fetus from the mother and essentially say they define the mother essentially as a box, a storage thing, then both progressives and conservatives miss the point, which is until the point of birth, they are in relationship. Whether or not it's viable outside the fetus is almost irrelevant in the sense that the 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 woman, uh, sorry, the, 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 the parent who is um, holding the child um, who is in relationship to the child. They are feeding the child. They are providing them with safety and warmth. So until they are born, they're not independent. They're in an intimate relationship. So I guess... I guess my question, my final question to you with only a minute or so left is, is is there not a difference between a fetus that's in relationship, physical relationship, and a fetus that has become a baby once it's born? Because for you, you're saying that there's no difference. Help, help right. me. There, there is no. I, you're right. I don't think there is a difference. I think that at the moment, I find it interesting that she talks about relationships because you have relationships with other living beings, not with rocks or things of that nature. So, I think she's on the right track. There's a relationship, and of course, scripture speaks of right relationships. And so, I think the trouble, I think, with she talks about subject-object, but mm. it's actually subject-subject from our point of view. The the baby yeah. in the womb would be a subject, and she would be a subject. And really, for us, she's feeding and nurturing through her umbilical cord, that baby, just as she would with the newborn baby. And that newborn baby is not by any means independent, because if you have the baby and then walk away, the baby's going to die. That baby is no more uh, independent than it was a day before the birth. So uh, to my mind, that that's, that's still a question of, of personhood cannot be given at any one moment, you know, because you could say, okay, f- forget late-term abortions, fine. Then at what moment did that person become a person? What You know, that's mm. what we're trying to say. It's not at birth because uh, it's something that the person has been progressing and developing all along. Um, you, you, once you go, to me, once you buy that argument, then you're on a very slippery slope because then you could start to say, well, it's 7 o'clock. I mean, 7 o'clock, 7 mm. years old. Or then you could start to say, well, unless the baby is perfectly formed and has an IQ of over 110, it's not a person. Unless it has a blue eyes, you get to a very slippery slope. So I think uh, you need to give the, the vulnerable party, in this case the baby in the womb, the benefit of the doubt. And so we as the Catholic Church go back to conception. 
I, I so appreciate you sharing your opinions. Obviously, we disagree. For me, in some sense, I look at the vulnerable party being the the person holding the fetus and um, being forced sometimes to give birth when they didn't even choose to become pregnant. Um, you know, in these in these terrible cases that we experience, I I really appreciate you being able to be here with me. I've always appreciated our conversations and our friendship. And so I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and starting this really important conversation. Well, thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. I think it's important that we have these conversations and thank you for, for sponsoring it. I mean, thank you very much. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom with my guest this evening, uh, Excellency Archbishop John Wester, 12th Archbishop of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.